We've been studying the Gospel of John for quite some time now, and I I imagine that uh, as we study John or as you read one of the Gospels on your own, that, that at least occasionally it would cross your mind to think, how amazing would it have been to have walked and talked with Jesus? I mean, to have been there firsthand and to witness his miracles, to hear his teaching, to see in person the compassion that he showed to others. Without a doubt, that experience was an immense privilege. And if you think about it, it was limited to a really small number of people. I mean, you had Jesus' 12 disciples, right? And at times, there were crowds of people listening to Jesus. But if you think about all the people who've ever lived in the history of the world, and then how many of those people were among those who saw Jesus in the flesh, it is an incredibly small number of people who actually got to see and hear Jesus in person for themselves. But the good news is, Jesus himself tells us that there is something even better than Jesus' physical presence on the earth. Something you and I enjoy if we're Christians. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 16, beginning in verse 4. I invite your attention there this morning. John chapter 16, beginning in the second half of verse 4. And I'm going to read down to verse 15. Jesus says to his disciples, I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you. But you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority. But whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Now, in these moments, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. This is some of the most intense and focused uh, teaching that we receive anywhere in the scriptures from Jesus, specifically aimed at preparing his disciples for life after Jesus leaves. We see a hint of this there in the middle of verse 4, where he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. I didn't need to say them at that time, or it wasn't time for me to say them then, but I'm telling you to them now, telling them to you now because I'm about to go. And you need to know, and this is my last chance, in a sense, to tell you these things. Departures tend to pull things out of us that we haven't said before, 
or things that we especially want to be remembered. Dropping a kid off at college, dropping off a spouse at the airport for a trip, saying goodbye to a loved one. All these experiences cause us to say things that we might not feel the need to say at other times. But when we're leaving, when we're saying goodbye, we want to make sure we've said those most important things. And don't leave those things out. That's what Jesus is doing here. He tells them in verse 5, Now I am going to Him who sent me. In other words, He's returning to the Father. And He says, And none of you ask me, Where are you going? Now that's an interesting statement because Peter had actually said back in chapter 13, Where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Uh, so what does Jesus mean when he says, None of you ask me, where are you, where are you going? Right? Well, he might mean that they're not asking him at this point. Peter asked earlier, but they're not asking now because now they know. Now they understand. Jesus has told them multiple times, in fact. He's going to the Father. He's returning to the one who sent him. So perhaps he's saying, now that you know, you're not asking me anymore where I'm going. Or perhaps he's saying, you know, even when you do ask me where I'm going, you're not really asking where I'm going because you're really just concerned about yourself. Right? You're really just worried about you. Why is it that you're not asking me what this means for me? Where are you going? What is this going to be like for you? What is going to take place? Could be either of those, could be both of those. But then he says in verse 6, he says, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Because Jesus has told them that he's leaving, or perhaps because what he said more recently, that after his departure, many people are going to hate them, oppose them, persecute them, some even try to put them to death. Jesus recognizes the the weight of sorrow that has settled upon his disciples. So he wants to give them some good news. He's not trying to make them feel sad, just so people will be grieving when he leaves. He wants them to have hope, to be encouraged. And so he tells them something that he says will be to their advantage in verse 7. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now put yourself in Peter's shoes, for example. What do you think Peter thought when Jesus said, Peter, it's to your advantage that I leave? I mean, nothing's recorded of Peter saying anything. We can only imagine what must have been going on in Peter's head. Are you kidding me? What could possibly be good about you leaving, Jesus? You're the Messiah. We've been waiting forever for you to get here. And now we've known that you've been here for three years. And now you're leaving and you're telling me that's a good thing? Peter loved Jesus, but sometimes he didn't know, you know, when not to contradict Jesus. This time, at least, maybe he didn't say those things that he was probably thinking. What is Jesus saying is to their advantage? Why is it better for Jesus to leave than to stay? He says, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In other words, it is better for you 
to have the helper with you than to have me with you. It is better for me to leave and send you the Spirit than for me to stay and you not receive the Spirit. Now, that still doesn't answer our question, right? Why is that better? Well, Jesus is going to tell us some things that the Holy Spirit is going to do, specifically what He's going to do for the world and what He's going to do for the church. But before we even get to those things, here's the fundamental thing about why it's better for the Spirit to come and for Jesus to leave. It's not because the Holy Spirit is somehow better than Jesus or that Jesus is inferior to the Holy Spirit. Far from it. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all fully God. They're all equal. They are all great. They are all worthy of worship and praise and trust and all those things. So it's not that the Spirit Himself is better than Jesus. But there's something about the Spirit being here that's better than Jesus being here. And here's what it is. When Jesus was here, how many people had direct access to Him? Not many. Because while He was here, He remained God, but He had taken on flesh and blood. He was a human being, right? Truly God and truly man. And as man, he could only be in one place at a time. He could only talk to so many people in a day. He could only travel so far. But when the Spirit comes, the Spirit does not take on flesh and blood like Jesus did. The Spirit instead comes to dwell in each and every person who trusts in Jesus. And the Spirit gives us access to God the Father through God the Son, through Jesus. So when the Spirit comes, we're no longer limited in our access to one physical location, right? One person in one place. We might hear that Jesus is in Jerusalem, but you're in Galilee. You can't get to Him. But once Jesus leaves and ascends to the Father and sends the Spirit down to dwell in us, now we have God Himself, not only with us, but in us. Whoever we are, wherever we are, all the time, in every place. That's why Jesus says it's to our advantage for Him to leave and the Spirit to come. But in particular, the Spirit is going to do some things when He comes that will be helpful to us, right? And helpful to the world as well. Verse 8, Jesus says, when He comes, here's what He's going to do. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now when He says convict the world, remember Jesus is talking here about the world that is set in opposition to Him. In opposition to God. The world are those who are following Satan in rebellion against God. That's how he means the word world there. And so he says the Spirit is going to come and convict the world. What does it mean to convict someone? Right? Well, conviction right, is when you come to recognize that you are wrong right, and that there's a consequence to that wrong. Right? One of the clearest examples anywhere in Scripture is in 
uh, Acts chapter 2, when Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, right? And he's, he's received the Spirit, and he's preaching about Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension and all that. And he tells the people, look, you killed the Messiah. You killed Jesus. You rejected him, but God sent him, and God has raised him up, and you guys completely missed it. And Acts 2 tells us that when they heard that, it says they were cut to the heart. That's conviction. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They came to recognize that Peter was right and they had been wrong. They had rejected the Messiah, the Savior. They had killed him. They had rebelled against God. They had done one of the worst things it was possible for them to do, and they were convicted about it, and now they wanted to know, what now? How, how can we respond? How can we be forgiven? What's our next step? That's conviction. And Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, He is going to convict the world. And that's really good news, because conviction is not something you or I can do. We can bear witness to the truth, we can tell people about Jesus. We can tell people what He's done. We can seek to persuade. Right? Paul, when he went from synagogue to synagogue and, and town to town preaching the gospel, he, he sought to persuade. He tried to convince people. But even Paul could not convict people. Conviction is something only God can do because it's something that happens in the heart. It's not within our control as human beings to convict someone about their sin and convince them about the truth of Jesus. We can seek to persuade, but only the Spirit can convict. And so it's good news for us that the Spirit is coming because Jesus has just told His disciples that you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to bear witness about me. He's going to send us out into the, into the world to tell people about Him. <coughs> Excuse me. But we're not going to be able to convict them. We're not going to be able to cause them to turn and to believe. Only the Spirit can do that. And that's exactly what He's going to do. What is He going to convict people about? Verse 9, He says He's going to convict them concerning sin because they do not believe in Me. That is the fundamental sin. Rejecting Jesus. We tend to elevate other sins and think, oh, that's, that's the worst thing. That, that's what's keeping people out of heaven. Is this immorality or this thing over here or whatever. No, the chief sin that is keeping people from salvation, from heaven, from fellowship with God. The chief sin is rejecting Jesus. Not believing in Him. You turn to Him and believe in Him, all that other stuff is wiped out. And so is that, right? So is your, that period of unbelief, of rejection of Jesus. All of that is wiped out. But it's rejecting Jesus that keeps people from Him and keeps people from experiencing the salvation that He accomplished through His death and resurrection. He said earlier in chapter 15 that the sin that people were now guilty of that they wouldn't have been if He hadn't come, the sin that they were really in trouble for, was for rejecting Him, and by rejecting Him, rejecting God. And so the Spirit is going to come, and He's going to convince people, like He did in Acts chapter 2, you were wrong about Jesus. 
You've been ignoring him. You've been shaking your fist at him. You've been mocking him. You were wrong about him. He is God. He is the Savior, and you need to trust him. Some of us have witnessed that in our own lives or experienced that in our own lives. We've seen people who wanted absolutely nothing to do with Jesus, and then the next thing you know, all they want to talk about is Jesus. How does that happen? That's not something we do. No one persuaded them to all of a sudden change their heart. That's something that God Himself, God the Holy Spirit, does inside of someone. So He convicts us, <clears throat> convicts the world about sin, convicts the world, verse 10 says, concerning righteousness. Because Jesus says, I go to the Father and you'll see me no more. What I think He means by that when He says, uh, I convict them concerning righteousness, is He will convict the world that Jesus was right. That Jesus was righteous, that Jesus was vindicated, right? All the things that Jesus said about himself, that he was the son sent by the father, that he was the savior, that he was the son of man who's going to um, be seated on his throne and he's the one who's going to come to judge the living and the dead and all these things that he said he was going to do, he spoke the truth. He was right. And he was proved right when God raised him from the dead after his death on the cross. And the Spirit is going to convict people, not only about their sin and rejecting Jesus, but also about the righteousness of Jesus, that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, and that's why now he's seated at God's right hand as the Lord, the Messiah, over all. So, Convict you about sin, convict you about righteousness. And then verse 11, convict you concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The ruler of this world there is not talking about God, who is the big ruler of the world, because he made it all, he owns it all, it all belongs to him. He rules over everything. But again, he's using the word world here to talk about those who are in rebellion against God. And so in that sense, the ruler of this world, what Paul calls elsewhere the God of this age, is Satan. The one who is ruling those who are in rebellion against God. Who is leading those who are in rebellion against God. And Jesus says, the ruler of this world is judged. He is condemned. He is proved wrong. He is defeated. Jesus already said this back in chapter 12 when he knew it was time for him to go to the cross. He said, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. At the very moment where it looked like Satan finally had the upper hand against Jesus as he was dying on the cross. Jesus was actually defeating Satan as he was paying for all of our sin, defeating death through his death and resurrection so that everyone who trusts in him will be brought out of Satan's kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved son, the kingdom of light. That too, the spirit will convince and convict people of. That's good news. That's what the Spirit is going to do in the world. That's what the Spirit has been doing in the world for the last 2,000 years. There's no other way that you can explain how many people have put their faith in Jesus, have devoted their lives to Jesus, than by the work of God, the Holy Spirit, convicting and convincing 
and drawing people to Christ. That's why we needed Jesus to leave. So the Spirit could come and do that convicting work. That's what He does in the world. What does He do in and for the church, in and for Jesus' disciples? Look at verse 12. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Even after all that Jesus has taught them, all the time He spent with them, all the things that He said, He comes to the end of His time with them and says, that, you know, there's still some things you need to know. But, now's not the time. You can't bear them. So, how am I going to communicate these things to you? How are you going to learn them? You need to know them, but I can't tell them to you now. What are we going to do? Well, he says in verse uh, 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Here's what the Spirit is going to do for the church. He is going to guide God's people into all the truth that they need to know. This is especially helpful when we think about where the Bible comes from. Where did Peter and Paul and John and Matthew and all these guys get all these things that they wrote? It's not just the stories of the things they remembered Jesus saying and doing in the Gospels. What about Paul's Letters where he's explaining the significance of Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection? What about where he's teaching Timothy and Titus and others what the church ought to look like, what Christians ought to do, how we ought to live as we wait for Christ's return? Where do they learn all that stuff? Is that all stuff that Jesus told them before he left? No. But does that mean that they made it up? Well, Jesus you know, gave us some of the dots and we have to connect the rest of them. No. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to teach the disciples, the apostles, what Jesus had not, was not able to teach them before He left, what they were not able to bear before His departure. The Spirit guided them into all truth. And not only that, He says He will declare to you the things that are to come. So things that are yet in the future that the church needs to know about. The Spirit communicated that to His disciples so that they would know what to tell the rest of us. right? And that's not to say that the Spirit doesn't guide each one of us into the truth. He does. He helps us understand the Bible. He helps us apply it to our lives. All those things. But fundamentally, what the Spirit did was He guided the disciples, the apostles, into the truth so that they could write down the truth for us so that you and I would have access to the truth in God's Word. And when the Spirit did that, He did that in unity with the Trinity, with the Father and the Son. Jesus says in verse 14 about the Spirit, He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit speaks not in competition with the Father and the Son, but in concert with the Father and the Son. The Spirit does not teach or say anything that contradicts what Jesus says. Jesus does not say or teach anything that contradicts what the Father said. They all speak distinctly and yet with one voice. 
So Jesus may not be physically present, but He has given us His Spirit who dwells in us. He's not left us alone, and the work He has left us to do, He has not left us to do alone. We bear witness, but the Spirit brings conviction. Jesus is at the Father's right hand, but not only is God still at work, God the Spirit is here with us and in us.